Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the uh, the gift of your word that is a firm foundation we can build our lives upon. And I thank you that the greatest word you sent us was your own son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. I pray that you would just stir our hearts with love for him as we look at his word and hear what he has for us today. Father, I pray that you would just bless our time. Thank you that we can meet in the outdoors um, spread out like this. And we just are grateful for... Um, for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the letter in the New Testament of 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter. And we are going to continue working through chapter 2 together. We'll make it through chapter 2. So if you remember the focus last week, the message was about how Christians are to live, how Christians are to live. And that theme is going to continue in the verses that we're looking at this week. Now, last week, we saw that the Christian life is a war against our greatest enemy. And our greatest enemy in life is not other people. It's our own sinful, fleshly desires. We also saw that we ought to live lives that point others to the Lord. Live lives that are a witness to other people. And finally, last week, we talked about how Christians are called by God himself to respect and submit to the governing authorities that are over us, so long as they don't command us to go against God himself. So that was last week. This week, we're going to continue to work through 1 Peter, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 25. 18 to 25 in chapter 2. And in these verses, Peter's going to continue this theme, this idea of submission to authority in society. And he's going to hone in on a specific group of people in the ancient world, in Peter's day, who found themselves in a position where they had authority over them that they needed to submit to and obey. These people were, were slaves, or as some translations soften the word a little, servants. And we'll unpack that in a little while. What was a slave in the ancient world? But before we dive in, I just want you to remind to remind you of several things that we just keep bringing up as we go through. First, I want you to remember that the Exodus story in the Bible forms the blueprint for almost everything that Peter says in this first few chapters of the letter. And it's not different today. In this passage, we're going to read about slaves, servants, and do you guys remember in the Bible story, the Exodus story, what were the Israelite people in Egypt? Slaves. They were slaves in Egypt before God set them free. Now, were the Egyptians nice masters or mean masters? Mean. They were brutal. They beat them. And eventually, in the story of the Exodus, we read that God dealt justly with their evil oppressors. And he set his people free in this great exodus event where they exited Egypt in the darkness there, following the light of the Lord and the Lord's servant, Moses, who led this exodus event. The Lord's servant, the Lord's slave, Moses, leads the slaves of Egypt out into new freedom. And so led by the slave, the servant of the Lord, they come into a new slavery a new master, but it's a glorious servanthood. They become slaves. They become servants of their maker who wants only good for them. 
as long as they live for him. And so this is the Exodus story, and they're to serve their master, the Lord. And it's the same for we Christians on a spiritual level. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 16? You could look there in your Bible. 1 Peter 2, verse 16. He says, live as free people. Like, see, here's a freedom slavery language. Live like you're free, but don't use your freedom to be evil as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So there is a sense in which if you are a Christian, you are a slave. A slave of God. A servant of the Lord. And that's not an evil thing. There is no greater master. He calls his slaves his children. He dies to forgive us and make us members of his family. We're not just slaves. We're his treasured possession. But even though we're the treasured possession and servants of God, we still live in a world with human authority structures like government and police. We looked at that last week. And bosses and all of other authority structures in society. And so... How are we to live, we who are servants of the Lord, how would we live as servants of God and yet servants of men under authority? And so that's what Peter is explaining here. Verse 18 in the letter, Peter is addressing a whole group of people in the ancient world who were slaves or household servants. And they are to provide for us a model for how we all are supposed to live every day. You want to know what look, living like God's slaves look like? Well, look at slaves of, of human authority. So, so Peter is going to give some instructions to actual slaves in his day. And this is almost two, about 2,000 years ago. Well, not quite. First Peter 2, verses 18 to 25. Peter writes this. Servants or, or slaves, depending on the translation, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, we'll be working our way through these verses this morning in, in two steps. First, we're going to look at Peter's charge in verse 18. Peter's charge. Slaves or servants, depending on your translation, obey all kinds of earthly masters. So Peter's charge. And the next thing we'll look at is four reasons Peter gives for slaves to submit to their masters. So we'll start by looking at the charge Peter gives. First, Peter's charge. Slaves obey all kinds of earthly masters. I'll read it again in verse 18. Slaves in reverent fear of God, 
submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So the first thing that we need to tackle together this morning is who slaves were in Peter's context. Because the word slave, if you're in America today, it it carries a lot of baggage, doesn't it? That word slave. We think back to the 1800s and masters with whips brutally beating people till they were senseless and, and so many other evils that surrounded the trafficking of an entire people group, Africans, just because their skin looked different. They were stolen from their homeland by the, by the millions and, and sold like cattle. This great evil. And in the United States, race-based slavery, we, we fought war, to, a war to end it. I mean, yes, the Civil War was about more than just slavery, but that was one of the big things driving it. The slavery, as we knew it in America, was a horrible evil that treated some human beings as better than others, as more superior, more evolved or developed. But in many contexts throughout human history, over the last however many thousand years, um, slavery has not been racially motivated, or at least not exclusively, okay? For example, many times slavery resulted from economic disaster. It was an ancient form of declaring bankruptcy, okay? You know what bankruptcy is? Like you don't have any more money to pay your debts. If you run out of all your money and all your assets are sold, what's your only asset left? Yourself. And so you would sell yourself into slavery to somebody and you would work for them to either pay off your debt in a certain amount of time or if you were really in trouble, you would, you would end up working for them for the rest of your life. And they would feed you and clothe you if they were good, a master, and they would provide for your needs Otherwise, what was your alternative? You know, you'd be on the run or you'd die. So that was a, a, a common form of slavery in the ancient world. Not the only one, but economic slavery was very, very common. Now, again, we don't have time to unpack all the ins and outs of slavery in Peter's day and what it looked like. But at the time that he was writing this letter, Church historians and historians of the day, they estimate that one in every four people in that context would have been a slave. And because the gospel of Jesus was all about Jesus setting captives free to sin and darkness, and it was a, a, a religion that glorified weakness with the strength of God and all that, it was very popular among slaves and weak people groups. And so... The early church had a disproportionate number of slaves. So as Peter is writing this, it is very likely, as he's writing to this group of churches scattered throughout Asia, he's probably writing to an audience that was that maybe even half of them would have been in some position of, of servitude, okay? They didn't own land. They didn't own possessions. They lived on someone else's property. They lived in their household, and they served them. And they weren't paid money. They were paid life. You could live. You know, you could eat so that you had strength to work. And some of them may have had some 
pretty, really, really good in Bear Masters. Others might have had Brutal Masters. Just horrible Masters. Just like, we'll get there in a few minutes, but some of us might have good bosses, and some might have not so good bosses. Now, eventually, as the message of the gospel of Jesus, the good news about Jesus, spread, it actually sowed seeds for a great restructuring of society, for the overthrow of slavery in the Western world, the abolition of the slave trade and the slavery that we, we are aware of in the West, that was largely overthrown by a Christian movement, a Christian-led movement. But Peter isn't writing here with the express purpose to right all the injustices of slavery in his day. That's not his goal. We might, you know, ultimately, all of the injustices we see in the world, they're not going to go away completely until, until Jesus returns. We might not have slavery here in the United States, but we do have all sorts of economic issues in America and around the world. I think we can agree with that. And we still have slavery. There's still slavery in many nations around the world. But Peter's writing, this is his main focus. He's not trying to overturn the entire economic structure of the Roman Empire with this letter to the churches. What he's trying to do is he's trying to help Christians to know how to live both in the Roman Empire and in whatever society they find themselves in up till our present day. And as Peter has been writing this letter, what we've seen so far is he's been saying some pretty amazing things about the identity of Christians, about who Christians are if they trust Jesus. And these amazing things might make Christians tempted to rebel against masters, especially unfair masters. So here, we'll talk about why in a second. But here he's saying, the, addressing the question, how should Christians live? Imagine. Imagine um, a, a slave who trusts in Jesus, right? He's a child of the king. He's an equal to his master in every way. In God's eyes. He's a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, according to Peter. He's a royal, he's part of the royal nation. <laughs> Those who have, if you trust in Jesus, you're royalty. You become part of Jesus' family. If he's the king and you're part of his family, what does that, what does that make you? Royalty. And the slave finds himself serving a master. The son of the king of heaven, serving a human master. How? What should he do? Should he look his boss in the eye and say, I don't have to listen to you. Get out of my, I'm a child of the king. And Peter says, no. He says, out of fear of God, submit. Submit. Obey. Serve. Be the best worker you can be. Because ultimately, you're not working for that boss, for that master. You're working for the Lord. And this obedience, it wasn't just to be rendered towards masters who were good and upstanding. Look at verse 18. Not only to those who are good and considerate, Peter writes, but also to those who are harsh 
That's really a, a startling statement to read, at least for me. Peter's saying you don't just listen to and seek to obey masters who are good and fair, who are easy to obey. It's just a dream to work for you. No, you also seek to do the will of masters who are harsh and even unfair, not for their sake ultimately, according to verse 18, but for the Lord's sake. Now, that doesn't mean you follow your your master or your boss into sin, okay? In chapter 1 of the Exodus story, we read a really important story about the Hebrew midwives, those who were delivering babies in Egypt, and they were told by Pharaoh, take all these baby boys and throw them in the Nile River. And they didn't do it. Does anybody remember in Exodus 1 verse 17 why they didn't do it? They feared the Lord. Do you see that there in verse 18? Out of fear for the Lord, submit to them. But in Exodus 1, the same fear for the Lord led these ladies not to submit to Pharaoh, but to say, now we're sticking with the God of the universe on this one. Okay? You're wrong, Pharaoh. But, as a whole, Israel as a nation was serving and working under these rulers in Egypt, obeying their masters until they couldn't. And that's, that's Peter's point here. He's calling on slaves, on these servants in the ancient world, to be the best of slaves, to work for their masters as if they're working for the Lord and not for their masters, because ultimately God is their master and king. So they work hard for his sake. Everything that you and I do in this life is ultimately, if we're a Christian, it's to be for the Lord. So, before we move into the next few verses, I want you to and look at the reasons that Paul or Peter starts to give for why we should do this. I want to start, stop and just apply this specifically, again, to us. We, we don't have institutionalized economic slavery in our society, though um, sex slavery is a huge and growing problem all around the world, including the U.S. Not type of slavery that's a completely different arrangement than what peter's talking about here sex slavery there is no instance when that is a good or right thing it is brutal it's evil to the core and it must stop many christians are fighting it but there are a lot of cultures today that have various forms of economic slavery or at least tremendously unfair work environments i don't know if have you ever heard of sweatshops in china I don't want to go into detail describing, but just horrible places to live. Trapped in a dead-end job, barely making ends meet. And there's so much injustice and inequality and fair unfairness. That's just one example going on around the world today. It's sickening. Technically, the workers might not be slaves. They're not chained up or anything. But they work in extremely difficult conditions for extremely long hours with unfair pay. And they're stuck. They're free to quit, maybe, but quitting means death because you will starve. Okay, you, you can't feed your family. That's like slavery. It's, it's not, you're stuck. You're, you're really, you're a slave of the system. And you need to work to eat. Maybe uh, 
Some of you may have felt like this sometimes in your jobs. Kind of stuck. I, get, I don't really love my job, but I'm stuck here. I got, I got to pay the bills. Um, obviously, it's not the slavery like the African Americans endured in our country, but it is, or maybe could feel like a form of slavery at times. But for us, um, our boss-like figure would be like the, the master of the ancient world. And I think this passage, it really does have something to offer those of us who are working under a boss. I think Peter would tell us to apply this passage in our lives by honoring those that we work for to the degree that we're able, even if they're being unfair or ignoring the good things we're doing or they're not paying us what we feel like we deserve. Submit, says Peter. They're in authority over you. Don't use their poor treatment of you as an excuse to steal from the company or be lazy. You're not working for them ultimately. You're working for the Lord. And I'll, I'll close with by saying more about this in a few minutes. But I just want you to already be thinking about how this passage and what we read next might apply to those of us who are working for other people. For now, though, let's look at the four reasons Peter gives. This is the second. So remember verse 18, point one, the charge that Peter gives. Now point two, the four reasons he gives in verses 19 to 25. So I'll read these verses. Um, well, actually, I'll, I'll just read the first reason, um, and we'll work our way through the verses as we go. So the first reason is found in verses 19 to 20. Look at verse 19. For, Peter says, that's the reason language. You're giving a reason for something when you say for. For this, submitting to authorities, this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures suffering or sorrows while suffering unjustly. For, he's going to unpack it more, what credit is it to you if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So, to summarize the first reason that Peter gives, why should we live like this? Well, those who suffer unjustly for doing good at work, in God's sight, they receive grace from God. So why serve masters even when they treat you unfairly? Two times. It's a gracious thing, Peter says. It's a gracious thing. Suffering for doing good puts us in a perfect situation to experience the sweetness of the gracious love of God all the more. As we suffer for doing good, we know we're not getting any rewards here. And it just forces us to put our hope in the reward that God will give us. And I'll just remind you what this is from 1 Peter chapter 1. He's already talked about it. 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 9. What is this gracious gift that God's going to give us? According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are be being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to re result in praise, glory, and honor, not from your boss, but at the revelation of Jesus when he comes. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what are hardships at work doing? They are opening you up to experience grace from God. No matter what you're going through, nothing can take away this hope. And the harder things get, the more frustrating things can be, the more that it pushes you and I to cling to what cannot be taken away. The hope of these verses. And the stronger, the harder the trials get, the harder we cling to the inheritance that is undefiled unfading, imperishable, kept in heaven for us. So when we suffer, mindful of God, according to verse 19 and 20, when you suffer at work, hard things, mindful of God, it is a gracious thing. Remember, this is grace for me. This is grace. It is opening me up to grace. But Peter gives a second reason obeying unjust masters and employers in these verses and we've already touched on it but verses 19 to 20 we'll see the second reason he says for those who suffer unjustly for doing evil they receive no credit from the lord you're not going to experience the grace of the lord and the sweetness of his promises that we just read you're not going to experience the joy of knowing his imperishable inheritance if you're caught cheating or stealing or lying at work or being lazy no matter how unfair or unworthy of your best off efforts your boss seems to you it's like i'm not working hard for him he's he doesn't he's not worth my efforts if you're caught doing wrong there will only be shame and pain and suffering without any of the sweetness of knowing that god is for you because in that moment god won't be for you he, he will be you will be receiving the just consequences of your actions. And that doesn't mean there's no forgiveness from the Lord, provided we turn to him and ask for forgiveness for our messing up at work. Like, I, I, look, I, right now I don't work directly for, I don't have like a boss, but I've had plenty of bosses. Um, and look, there was times where I took the 20-minute bathroom break, being lazy, I just was really annoyed or frustrated, whatever. Look, we all do it, okay? And and the Lord sees and he knows we're not to work for our bosses ultimately. We're working for the Lord. And he will reward faithful service. He's our king. We're citizens of heaven's kingdom. And as we walk about on earth, we follow the ethics of heaven. And that's so so important for what Peter's saying. So he's going to move now to his, his next reason, or his, his third motivation in verses 21 to 24. 
The third motivation is that suffering for doing good at work is the way of Jesus, who suffered great injustice to do you good. So, verses 21 to 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, there's so much in these verses that we could unpack, um, but uh, they all function as support for what Peter's telling slaves in his context to do. And so that's the main thing that I want to show you is how these verses support what Peter's calling slaves and all of us to do. Peter wants us all to see that when we're suffering hardships, and particularly hardships at work or at the things we're doing, even as we're doing our best, we are, we are literally walking in the footsteps of our Savior Jesus, who suffered mightily while he was doing God's work in this world, even though he only and ever did people good at every turn. Like, Jesus only did good. He was the best of workers, right? And yet, he suffered greatly. And the more you experience that kind of suffering, the more you will have the opportunity to become and learn to be like Jesus, which is the end goal of our salvation. So here in these verses, you may have noticed it, but the Apostle Peter is actually leaning heavily on the language of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52, verse 13, up to chapter 53 the language of the passage that Richard read for us earlier. Do you see the quote in verse 22? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's from Isaiah 53, verse 9. Why do you think Peter might start quoting from Isaiah as he's talking to slaves about working ultimately for the Lord? Well... In Isaiah, we find the answer. Isaiah 52, 13, God says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Near the end of chapter 53, he says, By his knowledge, my servant will make many righteous. Servant, slave. Isaiah calls Jesus a servant of the Lord, a slave of the Lord. Jesus came to this world as a humble servant of humanity. So as we behold Jesus, we behold a slave, a servant. Remember when Jesus washes his disciples' feet? You, ever, you heard that story? He puts on a towel like a household slave. That was like a slave's job, servant's job. All right, wash the guest's feet. Jesus did that. And... When the disciples were like, no, you can't do that. Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, I can't, I can't save you. You have no part in me. You have to let me serve you. Jesus came to serve us. And so we are only following in his footsteps when we are servants as well. 
And Jesus didn't just serve those who treated him fairly. He served Judas too. He washed Judas's feet. It's truly amazing. He had no sin, and yet he was despised. No deceit, and that yet people lied about him. He didn't threaten them though. No, verse 23 of Peter, look what he did. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. God sees, God knows, God's fair. And what did Jesus get after crucifixion? He's being served up huge mountains of injustice on the cross, punished there. And he entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And what did God do to prove that Jesus was innocent? He raised him from the dead. And no matter what you experience in this life, if you do your work to the best of your ability for the Lord and not for men, what will you receive one day when Jesus shows up that will prove your innocence. Resurrection. Resurrection life. Praise, glory, and honor, says Peter earlier in the letter, at the resurrection, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the fourth and final reason Peter gives for submitting to earthly masters or bosses. Fourth, this suffering Savior is the shepherd of your souls, and you must follow him. Four, Peter says, verse 25. Again, that's the word you use when you're given a reason. He's just given all these reasons. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So once again, this verse has a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And, and so the verse goes on, God laid our sins on Jesus and we follow him now. He's become our shepherd and he is a good shepherd. He only wants what's best for you. So the question is, do you trust him? Do you trust him enough to follow in his footsteps? Even when it's hard, he has your good in mind. And as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we seek to submit to human authority, according to Peter, in the workplace so I'll, I'll close with two things that doesn't mean and one final thing it does mean not just for those who are working in the workplace but for all of us first i don't again i don't think peter is saying that you should let yourself uh just be abused in the workplace and never try to avoid being hurt or speaking up okay he's not saying you can't say hey you know could i get a raise like He's not saying that. Um, but imagine you truly were a slave, like in Peter's day. And there really was no way out of your situation except death. How should you live? Well, according to Peter, you'd be the best slave you can be. You work as honestly and as well as you can to the glory of God. And you doing evil, Peter says, doing evil in response to being treated in an evil way. Repaying evil with evil will not help. But no, we overcome evil with good. 
And we cling to the promise that God is going to be a just judge one day. And every good work that we do, it will be rewarded. And every evil deed done to us will be accounted for on the day of reckoning. The judge of all the earth will do right. And so in our modern context, there, there are sometimes things we can do to hold employers accountable for our actions. That's a little bit different. Accountable for their actions. That's a little bit different than in, in Peter. We have a system that allows for some employer accountability. All right? And that, that's a good thing. But sometimes, um, at the end of the day, uh, I'll just say, summarize by saying, at the end of the day, what Peter's saying is, no matter what, if you've tried to right the wrongs, um, just put your head down. It's Carl. Carl and Richard and I have this kind of really lay low. <laughs> Do the best you can. Um, and honor Jesus. Work for him. And never repay evil for evil. You're being slandered about? Don't slander in return. You're being reviled? Do not revile. Be like Jesus on the cross. Entrust your soul to the one who judges justly. He will make it right in the end. The second thing I don't think Peter is saying is that you submit to your boss when your boss tells you to do something wrong or immoral. Okay? I've said this earlier with the Hebrew slave women um, that would refuse to obey Pharaoh and kill babies. We've talked about that earlier. But I just want to stress it again. It is better to obey God than people always. We ultimately are slaves to him first. Christians refuse to deal dishonestly, even if they'll lose their jobs because of it. It's better to die than to lie, ultimately. I once had a friend who worked for Sprint, and he felt that um, he had to quit, and he eventually did quit. He had that option because he felt his bosses and even the whole company and the way it was set up, it was encouraging him and even incentivizing him to lie to customers about the actual cost of their phone plans. But my friend refused to lie. He told people the truth about what those phone plans really cost. He, he refused to lie. Sometimes companies hide the details, right? But this company at this time, and I don't know if Sprint still does this, it was requiring Alex to do more than hide the fine print. He was required to tell customers something that wasn't true, all right? And, and he, we had a long conversation on the phone one time, and he was just like, I just can't do it. My conscience won't let me. This is wrong. He approached his boss. It cost him a raise, and eventually it ended up getting, he had to quit. He just couldn't make his quota. When he told people the truth, nobody wanted to sign up for the phone plan. So that was what his decision was. And all of us might, maybe you've experienced that before. You just, you can't go there. And you stick up for what is right. That's what Christians do. Finally, as Christians, we must remember that all of us, in whatever we do, we're always working for the Lord and not for men. And he made you. He made your hands. He made the breath that's going in and out of our lungs right now. He made 
everything about us. He deserves our best. And he knows when we gave our best, even when others don't see it, which is a precious thing to me. We may receive only criticism at work, but if we know that before God, we tried to do what was right, then we can sweep, sleep well, knowing he is smiling. The Apostle Paul says this, and I'll close with this. Colossians 3, verse 17, he says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, friends, we work in Jesus' name because he is our Savior and he is our King. And we do when we do his work, his way, for his glory, we'll hear his words one day. Well done, my good and faithful servant or slave. We are slaves of the slave king who gave his life for us. Though he was the greatest, he humbled himself and became a man, a servant, and died on the cross and rose again for us. And so remember, obeying authority, we, we obey authority as an act of service to our king. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for, for Jesus. And I pray that you would um, stir our hearts with, with great love for him, for what he's done for us, for how he's saved us. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts a deep desire to live with all our might while we live. In everything we do, whether it's work play, encouraging others, visiting with others. Lord, I pray that we would do our best to honor you in our actions and with our lives. To give you the, the glory and the praise through what we're doing. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Will you help us? Amen.